0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with Capital Weekly and thank you so much for tuning in to the Capital Weekly Podcast. Usually, I would be joined right now by John Howard, the editor of Capital Weekly, and probably a guest or two, and we would spend the next half hour or so talking about California public policy and politics and whatever else came to mind, but this is going to be a special episode of the Capital Weekly podcast. We are going to broadcast one panel from last week's post of the 2020 election. Uh, Capital Weekly has hosted these postmortems for the last 10 years, every other year. And this year we were proud to present it in conjunction with the McGeorge Capital Center for Law and Policy. Uh, It was held on Thursday, November 5th, two days after the election. And the panel discussion I'm gonna broadcast here today was focused on the ballot propositions. And we were very lucky to have some people who have a lot of experience there. Brandon Castillo of Bicker, Castillo and Fairbanks, Jim DeBoo, DeBoo Debut Communications, Mary Beth Moylan of the McGeorge School of Law, Robin Swanson of Swanson Communications, and we were very fortunate to have Nicole Nixon of the Capital Public Radio moderating the event. Uh, Nicole also uh, is the host of the California State of Mind podcast, which uh, Capital Public Radio produces in conjunction with CalMatters. And you can find that either at the CalMatters website, which is calmatters.org, or at capradio.org. I would be remiss if I did not thank our, thank our sponsors. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We could not produce these events without the support of our sponsors. And uh, we are very lucky to have them on board with us. So thanks very much to the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, KP Public Affairs, Western States Petroleum Association, Kaiser Permanente, California Building Industry Association. They're celebrating 75 years this year, by the way. Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, Perry Communications, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, California Professional Firefighters, Pandora, and the one and only Paula Treat. So I'm going to go ahead and get out of your way now and turn this over to Nicole. Thanks so much for listening. We're going to have a couple more of these special episodes coming up with uh, broadcasts of the other panel discussions, and our keynote from A. Smith. And then next week, we'll get back to the regular episodes of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Hey, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks, Tim. And thanks, everybody who's watching. Thanks for all of our panelists. Um, I, am I supposed to introduce the panelists? Maybe I'll just toss it to each of you. You can tell us uh, just quickly about yourself, if you are working any, on any of these ballot campaigns, uh, first of all. Let's
2: start with Mary Beth. Thanks, Nicole. Um, I'm Mary Beth Moylan. I'm the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at McGeorge School of Law, uh, part of University of the Pacific. I don't work on any of the campaigns, but I do study all of the ballot initiatives, and I teach a course called the California Initiative Seminar. My students in that course uh, do objective analyses of all of the statewide ballot measures, and they um, published, we publish those online as the California Initiative Review. And so anyone who uh, wants to, we keep archived versions. So going back years and years, I've been teaching the class since 2003. So for any statewide elections that we've had since then, we have analyses done of all of the ballot measures. And they're on the McGeorge website. You can find them there. All right, Robin, go for it.
3: Sure. I'm Robin Swanson. I run Swanson Communications, and we ran the Prop 24 California Privacy Rights Act campaign on this ballot and won by 12 points. All
1: right. Hi, Brandon. Hi.
4: Uh, Brandon Castillo, Bicker Castillo in Fairbanks. We are a campaign management firm. We were involved in the Yes on 22 campaign and the No on
1: 23
5: campaign. Hi, Jim. (laughs) Uh, Hi. My name is Jim DeBoo, I have a small firm called DeBoo Communications, Uh, did the no side of Proposition 21, which is a rent control initiative and uh, uh, did a tobacco tax out of state this year for the first time I did the tobacco tax here in uh, 2016.
1: Okay. Okay, we have a lot to talk about, obviously. We're gonna get to all the big propositions, um, but let's start with Prop 22. Uh, This was the most expensive ballot measure in state history. It has big implications for the future of labor and labor laws in California, maybe nationally. Um, We're gonna talk about the money, um, but I just wanna get first initial thoughts about Prop 22 passing from each of you. What is your big takeaway for what this means? the message voters sent with this or the message that tech companies sent with this? And I think we should start with Brandon, since you are on the yes side.
4: Sure. It, of course, everybody wants to talk about the money, and there's no doubt we spent money to, to, to win, but you can't win in a state where Joe Biden won by 4 million votes unless you have a progressive policy that the voters will buy the message you're selling. And from the very beginning, um, the tech companies who are our clients told Democrats they were wrong on the issue, um, that drivers these these particular drivers wanted to be independent and so we we've created a package that preserved that flexibility and independence but also gave drivers additional economic security and so from the very beginning and we were looking at this two years ago on behalf of the clients um we knew that we had a message that a progressive state like california would support um because we were doing right by drivers so that's a real takeaway not only in california but as lawmakers across the country and federally look um to put together a proposal the voters rejected this binary choice of employment between independent contractors. Um, they understand the nature of work is changing and we can preserve that independence that these type of workers like while improving the economic security. And if you can pass it in California by a, a landslide where Joe Biden won by 4 million votes, um, I think there's a good chance to pass it in most states across the country and federally.
1: Anyone wanna jump in? I mean, as an observer, I was
3: impressed. I. I... <laughs> I remember seeing the title and summary and thinking they didn't have uh, much of a shot and that's where we all start, right? And thinking that that wasn't gonna go very far. Um, And then seeing the money coming in, of course, but obviously they used it very effectively on TV ads. And so, you know, if you're in that kind of a fight, which is definitely a dog fight that they were in, um, TV still works like as a consultant, as a practitioner, that's the takeaway there is that, you know, effective TV ads still work because they took that from, um, you know, what was what were really low numbers, I presume, on a on a ballot title and summary um, that wasn't easy for voters to understand and then took that well beyond, I think, what most people expected.
2: I'll jump in, too. I do want to, first of all, compliment Brandon. Anyone who has been asking me about this, I have said, it, it it was masterful. It's it was a masterful campaign, and money alone doesn't do it. You have to have a really good marketing campaign, and it was a really good marketing campaign that I think um, I've also used the word relentless. It was everywhere. It was in our text messages from you know Alicia, the single mom who really wants you to vote for her work. Um, it was on TV. It was on the ads on social media, but also on Hulu between your little commercial breaks, it was it was um, everywhere present and really powerfully done to to make the voters under feel like they were voting for the drivers and that this was really what the drivers wanted instead of this was 190 million dollars that was raised by um, the companies and so my concern going forward is I think that. Brandon suggested, and it's right, that there's a playbook now for all different states to um, go and and do this through the initiative process where where the initiative process is available. And um, I I do think like taking a step back and thinking about what it means for both the courts and the legislature to have taken positions of worker protection and now um, have a playbook for courts and for the legislatures to be sidestepped Um, and and to give lesser protections, even if there are some protections in place, is um, probably gonna be something to look at and think about. Well, let's keep
1: talking about that money. I think a a lot of people heard the sentiment, heard arguments um, from opponents or or skeptics saying, why are tech companies spending so much on this? Why don't they use that money to improve the lives of their drivers or, or pay them a little more? And I think this conversation is also happening on the national level to some extent this year. Is the money in politics starting to become an issue with people? Brandon, what do you think?
4: You know, money's been in politics since the beginning of time. Um, and and look, we're not the only ones that spent money on this ballot. There was $775 million spent on ballot proposition campaigns in California alone. Um, so, yes, you need it. I'm glad Robin brought up the issue of the title and summary. I promised myself I wasn't going to get up here and complain about the biased wording. But we we started off at 28% support based on the wording that the Attorney General gave us. 28% support. I mean, I think completely misdescribed what it does. But I'll put a pause on that and go back to the money. You can't win with money unless you have a message that the voters are buying. Again, in a state where Democrats overwhelmingly, I mean, this is the deepest blue state there is in the country, you can't win unless you can fashion not just a message, but a measure that the voters are going to support. And that's what we did. We spent the better part of a year and a half before we even filed this thing, um, figuring out where voters were. And that's why you saw this blend. we didn't just say, we're going to de- declare these, uh, these drivers independent contractors. We put together a package that we knew that the voters would support, that, it, you know, that had an earnings guarantee for drivers, that provided healthcare stipend, that provided a workers' comp, uh, comp type benefit. These are all things that are strong Protections, And as to the legislature and this comment that, you know, you could override what the legislature did, yes, you can. And that's when the legislature gets it wrong, the voters can step in. That's what the initiative system is for. Now, I'm sure this isn't what Hiram Johnson had in mind when he, uh, when he invented the initiative system, but the, the voters are the ultimate backstop here, right? They voted overwhelmingly in support of this policy. Um, and without a winning message and a winning measure, the voters see through this stuff. If you look up and down the ballot, Um, you know, they, they sided with Democrats on half the issues and and the other side of the aisle on some issues.
5: I, and I agree with Brandon in the sense that, uh, money's been around politics since the dawn of time. And I don't, when one side says they spent too much or too little, I don't usually think that's a fair and accurate representation because there's going to be, and by the way, it's not 108, it's like 200 and something now at this point that you guys (laughs) did, but, um, but i do think that there will always be someone else there'll be another campaign that goes above that in the state there always has been and when we do tax measures we spend a lot of money on tax measures like like i said the tobacco tax here and we fought tobacco and but we still spent 30 million dollars on the yes side that's not nothing um so i mean the, the the idea that money's in politics it's always in politics i do think just taking a step back and looking at this holistically and looking at the initiatives and this idea um that there was this massive blue wave that was going to hit california that really didn't happen um turnout you know from where i sit right now is probably gonna it's gonna be the most raw votes and i think paul probably mitchell talked about this this morning because of the 22 million that were sent out but uh turnout and vote share and things like that kind of wait to see what it looks like but um the initiatives in particular did not reflect a blue wave um, and I think there's a, there's a misconception, and even some of the legislative races, at the end of the day, the congressional uh, Democrats may lose seats here. The assembly didn't pick up any seats and the state Senate may, but they're all within the margin. And that's not a wave. That's a very, very small win or loss in either direction. And initiatives don't reflect that because a lot of us, and I'm one of them, where the uh, proponents tried to turn it into a partisan discussion, that doesn't work on issues. And I think we've learned that over time. So whether it's money or endorsements or all those things, those things matter deeply um, in campaigns, but you can't just label this as, oh, there was supposed to be a blue wave and you know, uh, uh, Democrats are gonna do one thing and Republicans are gonna do another and no party preference are gonna do another. That's not how initiatives work. And I think and my big takeaway again is First off, California did not feel this massive blue wave, even though we are deep blue. But then secondarily, when you're having a discussion with voters about initiatives, the partisanship pieces separate. And I think that they I think Brandon did a masterful job with that campaign. I mean, when I'm waiting for my Uber or my Lyft and the little icon says yes on 22, that is some deep deep thought about how you're going to do paid media and use your coalitions to help advance your cause and i've never seen that before i mean i was floored shocked uh, and envious and all those things about how they were able to use the resources they had at their fingertips to touch everybody in different ways and i think we should also at some point talk i mean brandon i'd love to hear what you talk about it's not just tv and anybody who just does these initiatives now and think that you can do broadcast television and cable and win are wrong because our, the electorate doesn't view paid media that way anymore. When I started in this, we did probably 5% digital and social media. And now that can be anywhere between 30 and 40% of your total spend for paid media. And if you don't do that, you're talking to old people. And that's it. And so there's a whole host of ranges on initiatives. And I think that's why they're so fascinating to everybody. Number one, everybody focuses on candidates. Well, the initiatives are where all of the policy is done. Because, and it's very, very divided because it's usually something that you can't get done in the legislature or something the legislature did. And so they're very divisive topics. And to me, that's like, that's the most interesting thing in California politics. And, and they are separate from the candidate side. And they're usually siloed for one group. So the outcomes don't affect the broad, they affect the narrow. So, but I, I, I and Robin, For being able to take privacy initiative that uh, had little money, that also had opposition this time that they didn't have before and to pass at the margin that they did is impressive. And the juxtaposition on something that you would consider a progressive policy, you know, by the pundits and something that was business versus labor and both of those things passed in an electorate that was not a blue wave just shows the diversity still of the state. And I think people misread that sometimes and just assume, well, California is only progressive. Uh, And that's not true. There's people out there you can have large conversations with.
2: But Jim, that also assumes that the electorate really does understand everything that they're voting on. And I I do think that some of these things are so complicated. And so, I mean, the privacy one's a great example of something that was so multifaceted and it made tweaks to an already existing strong privacy law. Um, and, And I just... I think you're, the assumption that people are so carefully understanding and studying and knowing, even sometimes, what the partisan breakdown you know we might think would be, I'm not sure that they actually do. I, the one other thing I wanted to add about. Um, this year. And I think you're absolutely right. We obviously did not see a blue wave, but but we also saw on the initiatives, to me, the thing that threads them together and the way they came out this year is that people are deeply worried about their pocketbooks. And I think one reason that, yes, resonated with people, too, was this idea that they don't want Uber, Lyft, DoorDash or Instacart to cost them more. Um, We didn't see anything that was going to cost people money do well. Um, people are really concerned about their individual economics. And so that's why I think even 14 is sort of teetering right now and is close because it seems like spending money in a time when most people in their own lives are feeling like they need to be careful with their finances. So um, I, I saw that as a real thread between the way a lot of these went down
5: just to respond to that two things number one i also don't think that anybody knows in the public what legislature votes on because they don't read the bills like and as a former chief of staff in the legislature i'm very aware of the lack of like understanding that people have on legislation so i agree with you and the electorate to their credit they don't have time that's why people unfortunately or unfortunately people like us get hired to deliver simple messages because no one has time to I, i can't even and until I look at the paper, I still don't know what the propositions are, even now, because I can't, like, I got my own, you know, the, the, those pieces uh, to, really, to really think through. So I think that the electorate in general, yeah, they, they're, they're looking for something quick so they can understand third things. And the second thing, what you said, what you just said is number one rule of initiative, running initiatives, which is you always talk about how to affects your pocketbook. That's not new. That's something. I mean, all of us. I think that's the first thing you do is try to link that to your pocketbook and on taxes. That's why taxes that don't affect people pass. When I did a tobacco tax, because nine percent of the electorate smoked. When Prop 55 and Prop 30 passed, it's because that only affected higher income. And what they did, what the 15 folks tried to do, was attach that to a person, to your home, to you, to how it's going to affect. That's how people vote on initiatives and. Our job as initiative consultants is to attach their brain to their heart. And once you do that, you have their vote. So that, like that to me, and as the only person on this panel who lost an initiative this year, which was Prop 13 in the prim- March primary for the governor, the only thing that that guy has lost, I felt that because it's the same thing you're saying on Stem Cell with a, with a lower turnout electorate, which is people don't view bonds as free money anymore. And there was an overwhelming, in the March primary, bonds and local tax taxes failed at the highest rate they had ever failed in like the last 20 years so it goes back to your point about pocket um now again yeah. look, okay you gotta get back but
4: you know i i I'd, I'd like to agree with jim and he's right on most issues but if you look at two campaigns in particular prop 22 and prop 23 um and randomly selected those because those are the campaigns we ran but We didn't make it about people's pocketbooks we did the research you know we my theory of the case when we went into it before we started doing the voter research was that people were going to care more about is my uber available um is it going to be affordable or my DoorDash is it going to be affordable um and that would be the 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 case to the voters it wasn't it wasn't the research was clear that voters cared more about these drivers we're still a very progressive state i agree there wasn't a huge blue wave but it's still california and so if you look at our hold the arc of our campaign yes we talked a little bit about services but the majority of our public facing advertising was about, uh, was about drivers. And, and it was a precarious situation for us to be in because intuitively we just thought we have to, we have to connect it to the self-interest of the voters. Um, but what the research kept showing us was what was on the ballot, particularly that ballot label, was about these drivers. And in the instance of dialysis, it's the same thing. We had strong messages that was gonna increase costs and that, but that was a secondary message. Our, our message was all about these patients, protect these patients. So I agree with Jim, it's always about self-interest. But the voters are capable of expanding beyond and looking at an issue and saying you know hey what are these what's good for these drivers or what's best for these dialysis patients because that's what I'm really voting on here so uh, I agree with head and heart um, but in those two instances they were a little bit unique in that we made it about not the self-interest but about you know these, this special category of driver or dialysis patient oh go for it
2: Robin
3: you no know, that's okay just to add a layer of that why a voter should care in the middle of a pandemic right like We've got all of these issues that don't address that there are hundreds of thousands of people dying uh, in the world of a pandemic. Um, and we can, if we're going to talk tactics, talk about how we all had to gather signatures in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so you know, kudos to the signature gatherers who got us through. And I think ours was one of the ones that was teetering at the end there because we hadn't gotten quite to what we had hoped to um, to get our validity rates, but. And and pure messaging from that standpoint, getting people to care about, I don't care if it's Uber drivers or privacy or kidney dialysis or anything other than people are dying and there's a pandemic still going on. Um, I think that was a really important reason to, again, simplify your message and make it matter. And um, I assume we're going to dive a little bit more into Prop 24 in a bit, but part of what we were looking at is, okay, how do we connect that thought? Um, How do we connect the pandemic to what we're doing? And the one obvious connection is the mom, you know, your kids are online now more than ever. So in testing all of our message, sure enough, you know, protecting kids online broke through. uh, And that was something that people could connect with that they're living in their real life experiences right now. So finding that one connection that's going to break through in the midst of kinds of
1: noise um we got an audience question for brandon that i really want to ask which is do you really think uber would leave the state if this proposition didn't pass
4: uh i you know I, i can't speak for uber but i dug into the policy as you always do right we have to simplify our message but you have to know what the heck you're talking about what the issue is i do believe sincerely that there would have been a dramatic change in these services Um, had AB5 gone into effect. And it's not just because it costs more, quote unquote, to employ workers, because it's going to cost them a lot to implement Prop 22 with the new healthcare stipend. But it's rather the the model. I mean, you know, this this is a technology platform that connects customers instantaneously with drivers. And to do that, you need a large pool of people who are willing to work at all hours of the night and day. And most of these drivers only worked Um, you know, two or three hours a week, five hours a week, 10 hours a week, the the vast majority of drivers are part-time. They'll do it after work. They'll do it at nights or on weekends. And so the way they call it the flywheel, the way this model works does require a huge pool of mostly part-time drivers to be available on demand. If you move into an employment model, you start doing things like forced set shifts. If you have to pay everybody when they have the app open, then you're going to require that they pick up all their rides, which means you're going to have fewer drivers. Some studies said it was going to be as many as 90% fewer drivers, which would have been 900,000, you know, these part-time workers out of luck. So yeah, do I think they would have completely left California? I doubt it, but uh, there would have been a huge change in these services that probably wouldn't be available in suburban and rural and smaller areas. It probably would have been forced to be, you know, in LA and San Francisco and some of the more urban, you know, dense markets. Um, So gone altogether, I'm not sure, but definitely it would have changed these services. It would have made them slower it would have, you know, made them cost more. I mean, look, you know, look at the taxi cab model, right? We all remember—well, not all of us, but many of us remember taxi cabs—and that's what they're talking about here. So, yeah, I think there would have been a dramatic change in the service.
1: Well, I want to keep us moving. Um, let's talk about Prop 15 now. It's this one's really close. It's behind right now, and the unofficial results still undecided. Um, we've talked about the pandemic. We've talked about the pocketbook coming into play on these issues. This election, any. Mm-hmm takeaways? Do you think that that those can those two things moved enough voters um, to be more skeptical of this one? Robin,
3: I mean, I, I think that was a that's a hard sell right now. And that's what they faced, Right. So they had to make the case that, you know, schools and firefighters and public and all of these public services desperately need these funds now more than ever. And I do think that one is competing with the just basic pocketbook issues. And so I think that one probably had the biggest challenge in terms of that pocketbook connection that Jim was talking about. So um, and that's why it's teetering exactly the way it is. And to earlier points, um, you know, California isn't a big blue banner. They're is a whole Central Valley that we all have to pay attention to. um, And certainly other parts of the state that don't just vote in a monolith. And you have to communicate a little bit differently with those folks about why it's so important to them as well. So um, I think that's a tough issue, tough challenge, tough bar to cross. And, you know, I think that it ain't over till it's over. But that was a probably the toughest of the bunch in terms of you know, competing with a basic message that this could hurt your pocketbook.
2: I think again, too, they they focused on um, tying the message differently than to the big corporations, right? So uh, what what could have been, look, this is just about corporate property. This is really not going to impact small businesses. There was in fact, in the initiative, a, a small business carve out. But they took that and were able to say, no, this really is going to hurt small businesses. They were able to point to um, the ways in which leases are written. And so that the taxes would be borne out by the by the lessee and not the lessor. Um, and I think that in that way, it did appeal. They, they did a good job appealing to people to think this isn't just a tax on business. This isn't going to hit the average person, the small business owner, and it's gonna hit your pocketbook down the line because this is gonna be uh, borne out by the consumer as well. And so I feel like with a lot of the initiatives this time around, getting to that, how it impacts you, the human element, um, even if the the way that the statute itself was written was not necessarily um, you know, trying to target People's pocketbooks. <laughs> I think that everyone did a good job of kind of t- turning the messaging to suggest that.
4: Yeah, I, I frankly one of the biggest surprises to me is how close this one is. Uh, I think it's a testament to the yes campaign about um, you know making about corporate loopholes. Um, I you know if you would have asked me last you know March in the middle of the pandemic if it would be this close to you know raise property taxes, um, I would have I would have said you're crazy. Um, but I think I think the no side did you know uh, the job they needed to do and saying this is about small businesses and um, but the yes side obviously made an appeal to voters you know the two, it was a two fold message you know don't let these rich corporations you know close the loophole which is always powerful uh, and then services you know they had the great firefighter on there they had the teachers um, but you know I in the middle of the pandemic I thought the pocketbook issue would just wallop and um, you know we saw some of it but we didn't see a lot of hey look if Walmart's property taxes go up. Who do you think is going to pay more for toilet paper, right? Like, um, they made a lot, they, they made an effective small business argument. I think this isn't just about the rich corporations, but um, I think that's one where the pocketbook issue. I you know I'm I'm again commend the S yes side for their campaign because this is I thought this was going to be a trouncing uh, on the nose side. I didn't think it would be this close.
1: Well, we're we're skirting this issue a little bit, but like, can we drill in a little more because so millions of Californians have lost their jobs in the last few months, like how much of an impact do we think that that has had on some of these propositions that, you know, what if these issues were on the ballot a year ago?
5: Well, I'll start with 21, which was the rent control measure and uh, the proponents two years ago ran virtually the same measure and we defeated it by basically the same margin that we defeated it by this year. Um, Both campaigns spent a little bit more money, uh, you know, on both sides, but because of the electorate, but it, it, from where I sit, it had zero effect um, because one would think in a pandemic, if you're arguing for something that would, you know, be something that everybody thought was going to help save them money, um, B would have a different outcome, and the outcome was to me even more pronounced on the no side because it was a presidential year with a higher Democratic turnout. And you're in the middle of the pandemic, um, so I, from from my where I sit on Prop 21, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a difference. In fact, I, I'm surprised, truthfully, surprised at the margin um, uh, because it's almost identical to what we did two years ago. And everybody who does this for a living knows that. Uh, gubernatorial elections have a lower turnout. It's an older electorate. This was not, I mean, not that. I mean, it still wasn't the blue wave that everybody, I think, anticipated, but it was still a much younger electorate, a lot more diverse. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, from, from where I sit, that didn't affect uh, the, the things the way that that I thought they would affect it. And again, and to back to Brandon's point, I think that's why 15 is so shocking to all of us that it's so close because it shouldn't be. It should have been a massive blowout. And the yes side did a, a very good job with what they were kind of handed in the, in the world that they were handed. Um, and none of us on 15 ever saw polling ever in our lives that showed that passing um, and usually losing by around 10 points. And that just didn't happen. So uh, but from, from where I sit on the initiative that I worked on, um, there wasn't, it wasn't an effect. And, uh, you know, in, in a campaign where people were trying to use that as a message, it just didn't resonate with the voters. Now, it could have been unique well, to our campaign, but, you know, it did.
4: I think, with all due respect, I think you might have a little bit of tunnel vision. Um, I think you guys did a great job of meeting the moment, right? If you looked at both sides' ads, you were saying the same thing. <laughs> you know, keep people in their homes on the one side and, and Jim's campaign, the No on 21 campaign was this is going to raise rents. This is going to raise housing costs. You know, it's going to result in, you know, less renter protection. So um, I thought in watching that campaign, you guys did a great job of sort of stealing their message, co-opting their message about rent control and keeping people in their homes. And you flipped it on them and said, no, 21 is going to increase your costs. 21 is going to get people out of their homes. So I, I think had you tried to take on and, and, you know, you're polling better than I do, take on the issue of rent control on its base, right? Um, and it would have been a different outcome, which is why you're in the campaign.
5: To be shockingly honest with you, rent control has lost its luster. It's it does not test at the same level that it did even two years ago. But to your point, I mean I'm not trying to be flip about it. I, and, and you're right. And but those were our messages from the last election cycle too that resonated with folks because that's the to your point, those are true things. We weren't making things up. And we right. we, we dig into policy, the idea that you know Prop 21. There is a statewide rent control bill. It would have undone those protections. It does stop affordable housing from being built. And those aren't made up things. And it does cost money. And that's something that, you know, when we go back and talk about the importance of ballot labels and the title and summary and all those things, all of that was relatively the same as last cycle. The difference was from a messaging perspective, a lot of the things were the same. The difference was we are in this hyper supposedly political environment with a pandemic over the top and the same outcome occurred. So that's all I'm saying. And Brandon, I appreciate you saying all those things. Thank you. It makes me, makes me feel good when, uh, when I know I didn't mess things up, but, uh, but, but it was from that perspective um, a, a little different. And, and my argument on 21 was they were trying to steal our messaging from two years ago um, and they just weren't able to do that. And that goes back. And, and we we have talked about this, but I do think it's important is having validators in your, uh, campaigns that, that are real, true, and that the electorate believes in. Um, and it's why so many of us spend so much time building coalitions. You hear that, but it's kind of trite. It's very important in ballot measures to make sure that you have coalitions that people believe in. Because if me or Robert or Brandon got up on TV and said, hey, believe what we say, people are going to tell us no, because they, they know we're paid political, you know, pun whatever. But they are very important.
1: I want to stay on Prop 15 and 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 go back to the fact that it is so close and Brandon you said that that was a little unexpected. Who is looking for an opening here and can we expect to see you know can we expect to see this issue come back in some form in the future?
4: You know split rule has been talked about as long as I've been doing this for 20 plus years and it's never been successful if they couldn't pass it this time with, you know, this huge Trump, I know it wasn't a blue wave, but look at, just look at the numbers in California and the turnout is, you know, as you mentioned, I think we're going to have 4 million more voters than we did in the primary. Um, when all is said and done, maybe not that many, if you couldn't pass it on this ballot, um, then it's probably not passable. And it's in its current form. You know, they'll, they'll probably have to figure out some other sort of reform to pass it is my perspective. Cause you know, like, like, like Jim said, I, I look at this at the beginning of the year and I thought this thing, was, you know, it's, it's toast. Because it's not, you know, it's one thing to, to demonize evil corporations. And it's California and there's an anti-corporate rip, But we've done a ton of campaigns for corporations. And it's not a very far leap of logic to tell voters, who do you think is going to pay? I mean, the very logic that makes people run anti-corporate ads also helps the no side. You know, these evil corporations aren't going to impact their profits. They're going to pass it on to us, right? So that same mentality applies to the no side of these types of tax arguments, because voters intuitively believe that, the wealthy aren't going to, you know, just take it, they're going to pass it on to us.
1: Any final thoughts on Prop 15? Before we move on, I have a, a question about Prop 16. All right, um, Prop 16. I don't know, was this a surprise? <laughs> it seemed like this was the year to pass it, but, but the fact that it failed, um, was that surprising to anybody here?
3: I mean, I think that's what happens when there's not a whole lot of voter education around an issue and it's just sort of left, you know, to its own devices without a real public discourse around it. Um, So I am not shocked that that didn't pass. And I think it's just, again, as Jim said, you know, this is why people hire us, because um, you really have to have something behind it so that voters have a reason to care.
1: Well, um, there's a timing, there's a timing element there because this didn't even get on the ballot until about June, when the late June, when the legislature passed it. Would should there have been more of a runway for um, campaigns to get going on this? Should people have been working behind the scenes to to get a head start?
4: I mean, look, I'm I'm looking at the numbers, and um, yes on 16 spent 31 million dollars uh,
1: mm-hmm.
4: against no opposition. Um, mm-hmm. So it does surprise me a little bit. I don't know frankly, I don't know much about the policy, you know, as we all get sort of wrapped up in our own thing. Um, I haven't really stared at that ballot wording, but it's clear they had a ballot wording problem because every public poll you saw, you saw this sort of these, these pancake numbers, right? That flipped over where you had Democrats, progressive, I would assume progressive Democrats based on, you know, where the vote is looking like 56%. No, I mean, you had a lot of Democrats voting against it. And that probably tells me they didn't understand it, but it's not like the yes campaign didn't have resources. I mean, you know, we've all won campaigns with less than $30 million. Um, and so I, I don't know if it was a confusion of message. I I hate doing sort of, um, you know, autopsies on these campaigns that I just wasn't involved in. But clearly their message didn't come across um, in a way that voters, uh, you know, supported.
2: Well, I think Affirmative action is hard, right? Affirmative action is, is a hard issue. And especially all this one was going to do was remove language that had been put in our state constitution by a prior proposition, 209, and the language was in its own terms about not being racist, right? Like don't take race into account. And so to to remove that language, I think people become confused. Well, why would we remove what seems like protections against people taking race into account out of our state constitution? Um, And so it was nuanced. I guess I would say that. And I think that we have a hard time with messaging things that are that nuanced. And even in coming up with a fair representation for the ballot summary, I'm not really sure we should criticize the wording they came up with in the AG's office, but I just think it was a hard thing to explain in only a few words about why removal of something from the state constitution could be a positive and could actually um, be a benefit to people. So that was that was tricky and I do I, I, as to your point, Nicole, I think when you only have a couple of months to do that kind of education on a nuanced issue, you're not likely to reach many people especially because there was you know there were 12 measures and so there's so much other noise it's hard to get people to focus um, on something that is a little bit complicated. It is nuanced and also should point out that Prop 209 was 25 years
1: ago. There's an entire generation of voters that weren't around or were really young when that happened. Just to add to that, though, on the last cycle, um, Lisa
3: Gasparoni ran a campaign and I worked on her with that on Prop 58. Um, and so that was restoring bilingual education. And so there is definitely a path to with effective communications to get to voters, because I think there is... Empathy for that, um, and I saw that done very effectively with a very small budget, um, and was able to help with communications on that particular campaign. But there is an appetite for that, and overturning all things two oh nine. So,
5: I also think, and this is, you know, there are moments in time where you have the ability to do things like that, and that this constitutional amendment has been in print in the legislature for years and never had the support that it needed to garner a two-thirds vote and when George Floyd happened and social unrest as that was building up it created pathways for that it created pathways for um for the ability for proleys to vote and it created a pathway for 17 year olds uh to be on the ballot as well all three of those would never have passed in any other year, honestly. So the legislature. And what ends up happening when you have legislative measures is you don't have the time that Brandon, Robin and I usually get on initiatives. When we do this, we spend year trying to craft something that we feel the electorate will be okay with. And everything goes into that. What is that ballot title and summary gonna look like? What's the fiscal impact? What's the language if they actually read it that we want them to read? And there was no time for that. So the legislature didn't have the benefit. I mean, the author of that uh, legislation, Assemblymember Weber, who's you know, a, a champion and has been for years, she didn't have the benefit of having a bunch of political consultants come in and say, this is what the polling says, this is what the language should say, this is what the film is called. So they took what they had in the moment they had because they had time to meet that moment. And the backside of that is, and this happens in legislative measures a lot, When they get to the ballot, the language becomes an issue. It's not an issue in the legislature because the legislature is not the electorate. It becomes an issue when it hits the ballot. And that to me is the issue with that. If you look at the voting measure for parolees, it was like striking three words. It was the simplest measure you could possibly look at. Simplicity is beautiful to the electorate. And if they do take the time to look, that's the thing. So to me part of the issue, you know, you need the money, you need all those things, but you also need a product. If you can start, and Brandon knows this because he started at 22 or whatever and had to pull his 22 above. If you can start at 60 with a title and summary and a ballot label, that's a hell of a lot easier than starting at 30. And they started in the mid thirties. That is not where you want to be when you have to pull something up to a yes vote. You want it to be in the sixties. And I think part of that is because of the timing. To, to marry the best point, like it's hard to do that when you when you're doing a legislative measure because the legislature is writing it and you're taking that product and making it into a ballot measure as opposed to what we get to do, which is craft a ballot measure that we want, that we know the electorate, you know, has a chance of looking at and then moving forward with it.
4: I think, I mean, Jim, the point on that one, I didn't realize that the, that the polling had that starting in the 30s. I think the lesson you're hearing from all of us is that ballot wording matters. And that's why you hear so many people up in arms about this, any attorney general and the ballot, you know, we've benefited from it. We've, we've gotten, you know, the, not the benefit from it, but ballot wording matters. I mean, we, I can't tell you how many times we've told clients that the wording of a ballot measure is literally worth hundreds of millions of dollars in free advertising. In the case of Prop 22 and the case I did 23, we had terrible ballot wording. What happens, the reason you're seeing so much money spent is that you have to condition voters. You have to get their awareness. Voters started about 5% awareness on these ballot measures they have no no idea about. In order for them to look past bad ballot wording, you've got to drive awareness to like 90%, 85% of voters. You have to get them aware of this issue that they don't really care about. I mean, nobody really cares about dialysis, let's face it. But if they stared at that ballot wording, we knew they were going to overwhelmingly support it. So we had to condition the public and get that awareness up to 85 90%. For them to they're still reading the words, but they're glancing and they're saying, "Okay, this makes sense. I know it has to do with dialysis. I saw these TV ads or I saw a piece of mail. So ballot wording matters. And so the attorney general has an enormously powerful and 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 costly uh, weapon at his or her disposal and how they write those words. And so it makes a lot of sense. If that wording confused voters and it was only in the 30s, then, you know, we should commend the S on 16 campaign for getting to the mid 40s because it really does matter.
5: Because unless you're like my kid who comes in, you know, it's a dad, please don't vote for the initiative that's going to kill people, which was Brandon's dialogue. It's still, that's the, my nine-year-old took away two things. All the Prop 22 ads, he wanted to make sure that those drivers were okay and please dad don't kill anyone. That's awareness. When a nine-year-old says that, that means but, that both sides
2: of 23 people. took the position that people were going to die. My, in my family, we were calling it the, I said something about Prop 23 and my kid said, um, oh, you mean the one where everyone dies no matter how you vote? I said, yeah, that's the one. Okay.
4: I, I, think, I think the lesson of Prop 23 is that uh, people shouldn't abuse the ballot system for outside uh, political agenda, but that's my own personal risk. I think rip. we can agree. I think it's disgusting. Somebody can you know, take it to the voters and put patients' lives at risk for a union organizing agenda, but that's my personal reason. not opinion. what Hiram
5: Johnson had intended. Paid yes, signature gatherers, all of us doing these things, not what he want.
1: I wanna go to the criminal justice propositions. We talked a little bit about Proposition 17, which uh, will now approve uh, parolees, get their right to vote. Um, Kind of a mixed bag for criminal justice advocates though. Um, The Prop 20 campaign is failing. That would have really tightened up um, sentencing laws and parole. Um, But we had Prop 25, uh, the referendum on the cash bail system I get confused with the yes no because it's a referendum.
2: (laughs) I think that's what happens to a lot of people and honestly I don't think it really was that mixed a bag on criminal justice stuff. I mean we expanded parolees voting rights and we held props uh, 47 and 57 which were you know reform measures for criminal justice and this one would have been an anti-criminal justice reform. I mean it would have you know, as you said, tighten things up. So I think those two were quite consistent, the way people voted. And the only one that was inconsistent was 25, which is a referendum and people do get confused. They don't realize that you need to vote yes if you like the law, the proponents want you to vote no, it's confusing. And so I, I think that anytime we have a referendum and it gets all the way to a real campaign, um, it's hard. It's hard to get that yes vote uh, on a referendum. So I don't, I didn't necessarily see that it was people um, really clearly sending a message that they didn't want cash bail. I just think a lot of people didn't under, they didn't want the elimination of cash bail. I just think that people didn't fully understand uh, what was going on.
3: And to that point, Mary Beth, I think that goes to the basic messaging of all yes campaigns and that, you know, everybody wants to answer for every criticism and then voters are confused because you're talking about a double negative. And it is so tempting to go down every rabbit hole when you're, you know, when you feel right about something. And that is the quickest way for a yes campaign to lose. And I don't know that that was The case in this in this scenario, but with a yes campaign, people have to understand it, they have to believe it, they have to feel it, and they have to want to vote yes on something. And that's so different. And every panelist on here knows that a no campaign is easier to run than a yes campaign because all you have to do is confuse just a scotch, just enough for voters to be like, "Eh, "I'm not really sure about that." They will be inclined to vote no. And so I think you're seeing some of that suffering um, certainly on 25 and it just, it is a high bar for every yes campaign to fully understand and embrace and motivate to vote yes on something.
5: And I think on the referendum, people were just confused out of the gate, which puts the yes side at a disadvantage. And then the no side in that case, it was sponsored by the bail industry, but there were advocates who flipped on it. So you had progressive advocates come out and say we're we're actually no on this and when that happens and you start bifurcating your coalition like that it makes message delivery a hell of a lot easier so you fundamentally on a referendum having more confusing measure you have a well-funded opponent and then all of a sudden that well-funded opponent is using people who they that normally hate each other the bail industry and the advocates are not on the same side but now you have a message delivery track that you can use that completely confuses people so on 25 I agree with you, but I think the criminal justice world—what it did show, even in what I'm saying is not a blue wave, but more like of a blue-like tide pool or whatever you want to call it—criminal justice measures did overwhelmingly well. I think bail was just caught yeah. up in confusion, and truthfully, had advocates who had, you know, in typical fashion, would have supported something like this, oppose it, and they got to get, you know, uh, on the side of the bail industry. And then once, what Robin said, once that confusion is completed people know what the hell they're voting for. And I, I, what I will say is n- people have taken notice of that. And what with what happened with Uber and Lyft on AB5 and they went out and, you know, I do think that's a sea change moment where pe- people are going to say, okay, well, if the legislature makes a decision, we can go do this other thing. I also think the referendum process becomes the backstop against the legislature at this point, which is we're going to see more of this moving forward.
4: Yeah, unfortunately, I think, Cal- well, fortunately for those of us on the Zoom, but uh, unfortunately, in California, you're going to be seeing more initiative, more referendum, the, the, the deeper the legislative margins get, um, you know, the, the deeper the majority, the Democratic majorities get. I mean, where do, where does the business community, where do, um, you know, where do people turn other than the ballot if they don't have, you know, a chance, a fighting chance in the legislature?
1: Well, I want to ask about that a little bit because I, I was looking at the county level results on a lot of these initiatives last night. I don't. I'm sure you all have been digging into those results on on the initiatives you are working on. What what messages are you learning about how different regions of the state voted on your initiatives? go ahead, Brandon. No, you go, go ahead,
5: Robin.
3: Yeah, yeah, I'll jump in on 24 just because um, I. We were the little engine that could. We were not the big campaign. I like to think of Brandon's campaign as nuclear war, and we were more of a cage match. Um, and we won our cage match. And you know, if we it, we could have tripwired and gone to nuclear war because there's certainly those elements were there. If big tech had spent a ton of money, um, if you know, there are so many ifs that could have turned ours into something else. But in terms of getting people to care about something in this time, we had to make it relevant. We had to keep it simple, um, and you know, the, we had to use different platforms for Prop 24. So um, there's different ways to thread the needle, and I think we were able to break through in, in a different way in, in terms of being the little engine that could. We were able to ironically use online media um, and and had to, um, had to communicate our message online because we couldn't afford to compete on TV. Um, but we also had to find those voters in places like the Central Valley that would hear our message in a different way on radio, for example. So there's lots of different elements brought into that campaign?
4: If you look at the maps um, on any one of these measures, it's still all about the coast, right? Um, You know, you still it's not north, south. It's still very much a coastal inland divide, although I'll tell you, some of the inland uh, media markets are also becoming majority Democrat. I mean, you've got the Fresno media market now where you've got a majority of Democrats. Kern County is getting close. Um, You have very few media markets that are that are majority Republican anymore. But, you know, just generally, if you look at the map on all of these measures, um, you know, the coast is, is what wins on, you know, again, there, I agree, there's no, not a progressive side or a, but there are on, on certain issues. You know, if you look at the tax, I'm looking at stem cell research and they've got a, you know, a green coastline and everywhere else it's red. Um, and, and so that's really, if you look at regionally, you still have a more progressive coast, particularly when it's, you know, the Bay Area, LA, Santa Barbara. Um, somewhat San Diego now, and then there's the inland um, that, that's typically a little bit more right. So Mary Beth, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mary
2: Beth, go ahead. No, I haven't actually looked um, at the county breakdowns very much. I mean, I think that everything that Brandon and Robin have said is absolutely right, though. I mean, you just know, you can see it with candidates, you can see it with propositions. Like, we vote differently depending on our geographic... Uh, communities I will say
3: that we did remarkably well in LA um, I think we beat everybody else in LA uh, in terms of our yes votes yeah. <laughs> and being able to communicate with that audience is very different than how you communicate with folks in Fresno it just is and so I um, mean I we probably won't even have time to go through all of Brandon's techniques but I was very curious to see some of techniques used on 22 that i haven't seen before um and i think we'll all be studying those a little bit like wait how come that is showing up on my phone right now um so you know i think there's new ways to break through to different subsets of voters and it you know it does come down to money we probably spent about a million dollars on marketing which you know when you're competing against 500 million dollars being spent on everything else is just a little pebble in the in the river so
4: you know the um it, it all, always comes back to money right but campaign is, is expensive because it's not like you can only do digital now I mean you still in order to get the awareness levels we talked about you still have to hit people on tv you have to hit them in their mailboxes. you have to hit them on streaming tv you have to hit them on facebook you have to hit them and so that's part of the reason campaigning has become so expensive is because we are such, our attention is so divided. It's not like I'm a digital only person. I watch the evening news, you know, and my wife has her Facebook open or, you know, I'm streaming a show on my phone, a, you know, a football game on my phone while the TV's on. And so in order to reach people at the awareness levels you need, you need to be everywhere. And, and you know, Jim's right, our, our digital budgets, you know, used to be under 10% and now they're 30, 40% of, of our budget because people, but you still can't avoid the TV because people are there as well. So you have to be everywhere.
5: Digital is allowed for surgical precision though, that, that we used to use with mail. I mean, again, mail, you know, I've actually, I've, I've hated mail for years and I've actually come back to it a little bit because to Brandon Rob's point, like once, especially when, and we experienced this a little bit in 21, we thought we had this huge TV buy, but when we were competing against uh, dialysis and and, and, and and 22, it's it, they already were out there so much with so much volume. It's not a bad thing, but what else comes into play is you gotta be a little bit more creative because there was, I can't remember any, how many ads everybody saw of a face talking to a camera. And that just gets lost in the sea of whatever. So like I, I from my perspective, like on 21, It was the best digital campaign that I've been a part of. Um, And we spent a ton of time doing that. And Amy Johnson, who did our digital for us. It was the first time where where we really had this like multifaceted, not just the TV buyers, which I'm going to get in the weeds here, but saying like, hey, we're going to buy your digital for you. But it allowed us to create different creative also. So like we weren't just taking the TV spot and slamming it into your Facebook feed. We were doing separate creative that's more Uh, targeted to that voter um, because again a lot of younger voters who maybe would have messaging that they wanted to hear from us they aren't watching the evening news and won't they're not watching cnn relentlessly like all the political folks are they're on their phone they're streaming they're on hulu they're doing whatever and you have to find ways to reach folks and digital provides that in a way that i think as time goes on will be more robust, um, you're always going to have to do TV because it's the you know 60,000 foot kind of napalm effect of getting everything, but to be surgical, that's where digital can come in.
3: And just to add to that, Jim, I think just as the campaign that didn't have a ton of money, we knew we had like a nanosecond to get to voters who didn't know what Prop 24 was. So if they got to our initiative and they were on their phone and like, okay, what does that one do? You played a game to get your search rankings as high as you could go, and whether it's your Google AdWords or putting up press releases to make sure it was the latest thing—that one thing that people saw about Prop 24—that was real strategy and really hard work um, on you know for our team.
0: You know, I don't. Are we done here at bid two? I don't want. I to think go we ahead. are. Yeah, I think we are. So Nicole, do you want to? wrap this up the last second there. Are you still here?
1: Yes. Um, I mean, just say thanks to everybody for sharing your thoughts and takeaways. It's been a really interesting conversation. I know I've definitely taken some notes and might be reaching out to you for <laughs> stories or anything like that. So thank you, everybody.
0: Thanks for hosting. Thanks to all of our panelists. And thanks so much to Nicole Nixon of Capital Public Radio for uh, doing a great job of moderation. And it will remind all. our